You know, during our worship this morning, as uh, I listened to the lyrics of all the songs we were singing, and, and then we said the Apostles' Creed together, and all of us worshiping the Lord together, you know, a thought occurred to me, the devil really hates what we're doing here this morning. He certainly hates what we're celebrating here today. C.S. Lewis wrote a great little book called The Screwtape Letters. How many of you, a lot of you have read that book. The premise of the book is that Screwtape is a demon. He's a senior tempter, and he's writing advice to his nephew, Wormwood, about how to keep people away from God. That's the gist of the book. And a lot of people through the years have taken different tacks on that and tried to imitate that, and I found one just recently this week. Here's a brief excerpt from an article that has the same idea. A writer named James Emery White writes a screw tape letter about Easter. He writes, My dear Wormwood, it is that dreadful time of year again when even those most firmly in our clutches find themselves maddeningly open to venturing into enemy territory and attending a service, celebrating that event which cannot be named. I am, however, concerned that this year you report your patient is staying home. This makes him vulnerable. If he goes at all, make sure it's to one of those sappy affairs that's all butterflies and sunrises, eggs and bunnies, all new beginnings and positive thoughts, sappiness we can deal with. But it is best if he doesn't go at all, and certainly not to anything that would actually explain the event that must not be named. I can barely even bring to mind that noxious moment when he refused to admit defeat at the hands of our father below and resorted to trickery and deceit and called it a victory. We were cheated. This means you must be on guard against the enemy's more annoyingly earnest followers. Any of anybody here want some of his more annoyingly earnest followers? who would invite him to one of their pathetic celebrations, particularly the ones where someone might actually present things purely from the enemy's point of view. Of course, this morning, in the viewpoint of this letter, the enemy that he's speaking of is God. And this morning, we're not only going to name the event that must not be named, but we're going to celebrate it and we're going to present it from God's point of view. We're going to be the kind of church that the devil hates this morning. Abraham Lincoln once said that truth is generally the best vindication against slander. And since truth is fact, the idea of truth being vindication is a great place to start on this morning where we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The idea of vindication might make us think of taunting our detractors or naysayers, like this picture of uh, Albert Einstein. Some of you may not be able to read what he's written on the board there, so let me read it to you. To all of my math teachers in elementary school who said I would amount to nothing, LOL, you fail. I'm assuming that's not a real picture of him. LOL really predates, you know, the picture. Let's look briefly at this idea of vindication. Here's a dictionary definition. Vindication is the act of vindicating or condition of being vindicated. Number two, the defense, such as evidence or argument that serves to justify a claim or deed. It's that second definition that I want to focus on this morning. When someone promises something and then they fully fulfill that promise, that is vindication. When someone says something has happened and then there's proof that it has happened, that's vindication. Resurrection Sunday is the ultimate example of vindication. 
When Jesus said in his last moments of earthly life, it is finished, he was making a truth claim. He was claiming something. He was claiming that it was accomplished. It was done. It was finished. It was over. Near the very end of his agony on the cross, Jesus was telling us that his work had been completed. He meant not only that his suffering was over. He meant not only that his earthly life was over. But he meant primarily that he had completed everything, everything that God the Father had given him to do for our redemption. And as we hear the words, it is finished, we realize that God's great plan for salvation has come to fruition. The penalty for human sin has been paid. The chasm between sinful humanity and a holy God has been bridged by the sinless Son of God who was fully God and fully human. Now, because of what Jesus has completed, we can be completely whole. So when Jesus said on that fateful Friday, it is finished, he said a mouthful. He fulfilled a promise. But think about this for just a moment. What if Jesus had not been raised? What if he suffered on the cross and died on the cross, and then was placed in the tomb, and his dead body is still there in that tomb to this day. Would then his words on the cross still have been true? Think about that for a second. He said, after all, it is finished, right? When the Apostle Paul answered that rhetorical question in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17, where he wrote, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. So in a very real way, Jesus' death and resurrection are a package deal. One without the other is not complete. But thanks be to God, Jesus was raised. Now let me take a brief related sidebar here. Jesus was raised, and Paul's telling us that our faith is futile and meaningless and worthless if the resurrection is not a fact of history. Around Easter time, many of you may have noticed, we're often bombarded with so-called history documentaries which question this and other doctrines of our faith. Our secular culture and even some believers are happy with this false divide we have between faith and fact. One man, ironically receiving a prize in religion, once said, science gives us knowledge and religion gives us meaning. But, as author Nancy Piercy asks, can those two things be so neatly divided? When someone affirms that Christ rose from the dead, is that knowledge or meaning? The answer, of course, is that it is both. If the resurrection did not happen in history then it can have no spiritual meaning. Liberal theologians typically give up the historical claims of Christianity for what they say is some deeper spiritual or ethical core. But if you strip away the history, there is no core left. If God has not acted in history to accomplish salvation, then there is no good news to tell. So with that sidebar, let's return to our thought about vindication, thinking this way. Thinking back to our dictionary definition just a moment ago, when Jesus said, it is finished, God vindicated that statement with Jesus' resurrection. It, the it was the work of salvation, was already finished 
God said amen with the resurrection, thus validating and vindicating Jesus' words. The resurrection was, in fact, the best news ever. It was as if God shouted a great big amen into the universe. Now, I'd never thought of the resurrection this way until I began to research for this message, but I believe Jesus' resurrection was the day that God said amen. He said amen to Jesus' statement on the cross, it is finished. We get this idea when we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning with verse 19, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. The New Living Translation of this, uh, the last part of verse 19 reads like this. And he, Jesus, is the divine yes, God's affirmation. Let's develop this idea a little bit, that the resurrection was Jesus, was God's endorsement. It was his vindication of Jesus' words on the cross. It is finished. The resurrection was God's amen. It was vindication. It was validation. It was proof. It was affirmation. All the other synonyms you can think of. His work of the resurrection confirmed his word in the Son of God. Jesus on the cross, about the work of salvation. His work confirmed his word. John Piper wrote this. This means that what the death of Christ accomplished was so full and perfect that the resurrection was the reward and vindication of Christ's achievement in death. The wrath of God was satisfied with the suffering and death of Jesus. The holy curse against sin was fully absorbed. The obedience of Christ was completed to the fullest measure. The righteousness of God was completely vindicated. All that was left to accomplish was the public declaration of God's endorsement. This he gave by raising Jesus from the dead. This was God's amen. This was God the Father's public declaration, universal declaration, that what Jesus declared on the cross about the work of salvation being finished was absolutely and completely true. So when the word of God tells us, as we just noted in 1 Corinthians 15, that if Christ is not raised, our faith is futile and we're still in our sins, the point is not that the resurrection is the price paid for our sins. Clearly, Jesus' death paid the price for our sins. The point here is that the resurrection proves It vindicates, it endorses, it validates that the death of Jesus is, in fact, that all-sufficient price. Paul was saying that if Jesus is still dead, then his death is a failure. He's saying that if Jesus is still dead, God didn't endorse, or he didn't say amen to those words, it is finished. But we do know Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. Romans 6 Chapter 4 says, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. We know that the cry of success from the cross 
it is finished, was vindicated by the resurrection, by the fact that God endorsed Jesus' words in this very powerful, tangible, visible way. It was so tangible, it was so real, that a few days later, doubting Thomas could touch him and put his fingers into the living Jesus' wounds. It was so tangible that the Word of God tells us that more than 500 people saw him alive after he had been dead and buried. The work of the resurrection confirmed the word of finished salvation. There's a story about a renowned artist in the 1800s who lost his passport. He was traveling around in Europe, and he came to a border crossing, and he explained his problem to one of the guards there at the border crossing, and he gave his name to the official. The artist kind of hoped that the official would have heard the word, or heard his name and understand who he was, recognized him and allow him to pass. But the guard said, you know what? A lot of people say they're somebody else and try to get across the border. We're not going to let you across. The artist just insisted. He says, I am this guy. I really am. All right, the official said, we'll give you a test, and if you pass it, we'll allow you to get through. So he handed him a pencil, and he handed him a sheet of paper, and he told the artist, I want you to sketch those peasants that are standing nearby. And the artist did so very quickly and very skillfully, the guard was convinced that he was indeed who he claimed to be. His work confirmed his word. God's work of the resurrection, his practical, tangible amen to Jesus' words, it is finished, confirmed his word. It vindicated and it validated his promises. Now, amen is a very interesting word. In Isaiah chapter 65, verse 16, the Lord himself is called the God of truth. And the Hebrew in that verse literally says, the God of amen. This is Isaiah's way of telling us that the Lord is the one who is eternally true, the one who can always be relied on. In the New Testament, Jesus is given the same title. We read this in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, where Jesus is called the amen, the faithful and true witness. The word amen was transliterated directly from the Hebrew into the New Testament Greek. So rather than translate it into a Greek word, the same word was kept, amen. It was also made directly into a Latin word and into an English word. So unlike some words, for example, our English word for love, which can be agape or other words in the Greek, amen is amen in the Greek. And it's ahab in Hebrew, and it's amor in Latin. It's amen in Hebrew, it's amen in Greek, it's amen in English and many other languages, with only perhaps a slight difference in pronunciation. It's been called the best-known word in human speech. Now, the word is almost identical to the Hebrew word for believe or faithful. So it came to mean sure or truly. It came to be an expression of absolute trust and confidence. So when we believe God, we indicate our faith with amen, right? When we hear truth expounded from the pulpit, we might say to ourselves or out loud, amen. Amen signifies something as certain, sure, and valid, truthful, and faithful. Sometimes it's even translated, so be it. Of course, when God the Father says it, or when Jesus says it, it takes on added authority. Jesus used the word on nearly 70 occasions that we have a record of. And in the New Testament, often when Jesus used the Greek word amen, the word is translated truly. 
As in, truly I say to you. You can think of all those passages you've heard that say that. The Baker Bible Dictionary tells us that Jesus says truly or amen I say to you dozens of times asserting that his words are certainly true because he says them. In this way, whatever Jesus says amen, he shows awareness of his authority and his deity. So I don't think it's a stretch at all to assume that when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, heaven waited a few days, which actually, if you think about it, is nothing in the scheme of God's eternity. And then heaven heard and the world heard, the universe heard God's shout, amen, to the resurrection of Jesus. It was an amen. It was a validation, a vindication of truth, a proof of something accomplished that literally changed the world. There are so many things about the resurrection of Jesus. There's so many things that it signified and even more that was accomplished through the resurrection that it's kind of hard to say sometimes whether it was his resurrection or it was his death that accomplished these things. They're so intertwined that they are pretty much inseparable. We'd have to say that there are many things that were accomplished by both his death and resurrection as one package of spiritual power. So this morning, let's look at just a few of the things that changed when God vindicated Jesus' words, it is finished, by raising Jesus from the dead. Now first, and perhaps foremost, at least from our perspective, Jesus' resurrection gives us the chance for life in the next life. It secures our resurrection from the dead, your resurrection from the dead, and my resurrection from the dead if we're in Christ. It conquers death. Eternally, The resurrection changed the power of death. It was God's gift and God's proof that Jesus' death on the cross was completely successful in wiping out the sins of his people and removing the wrath of God. Remember, Jesus said, it is finished. By means of the resurrection, God the Father said, amen. Jesus' claim is vindicated. It's finished indeed. And one thing that was finished at that moment of the resurrection was the power of death. If any were to be raised from the dead, never to die again, Christ would have to die for them, enter the tomb, take the keys, and unlock the door of death from the inside. Then in the grave, he had the right and the power to take the keys of death and open the door for all who come to him by faith. If sin is paid for, and righteousness is provided, and justice is satisfied, nothing can keep Christ or his people in the grave. That's why Jesus shouts in Revelation chapter 1, verse 18, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Belonging to Jesus means we will be raised with him. We see this in many passages of Scripture. We see it in the passage we read a moment ago. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will also certainly be united with him in his resurrection. We see it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. We see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. And we see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 
verses 56 and 57, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What these scriptures affirm to us is that those who believe in Christ will not be sentenced to everlasting death. But instead, as it says earlier in 1 Corinthians uh, verses 52 and 54, the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. And then in verse 54, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. Didn't we sing that this morning? And isn't that true? This is clearly the most marvelous news we can celebrate. It is the best news ever. We have eternal life because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. We will experience our own resurrection because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Another way God's endorsement of the resurrection changed the world is that the resurrection gave us and equips us with the ability to live godly lives in this life. We see in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15, And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. And then we're going to read this passage again from Romans, but we're going to read more of it. We're going to start with verse 5 of chapter 6. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness, for sin shall not be your master because you are under law, or under, you are not under law, but under grace. Now, why did I read that whole passage? Now, think about this. If we just read the first verse, verse 5, which says, if we'd been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. We might be tempted to think, just reading that, that the resurrection only refers to the advantages we gain in Christ in eternal life. And, of course, as we've just noted, that's probably the most significant benefit to us that we clearly gain from Jesus' death and resurrection. It's a wonderful thing to celebrate about what Jesus accomplished for us. But Paul's thought in this letter to the Romans doesn't end there. Clearly, the rest of the passage refers to this life, to the here and now. Let's look again at verse 9. Since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. And then it says this, in the same way, in other words, in the same way that Jesus died to sin, died for sin, count yourselves dead 
to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. You know what? In eternity, we will not have to count ourselves dead to sin. In eternity with Christ, there is no sin. But we can count ourselves dead to sin in this life. God's vindication of Jesus' sacrificial death by the resurrection also changed the way that people are able to respond to sin. If we have received Christ and we've identified with him, what is true for him can be true for us. We can consider ourselves dead to sin. In other words, just as a dead body cannot respond to temptation, we as dead to sin are no longer powerless to resist. And we need not respond to these temptations either. Because of this, we're enabled, we're equipped, we're empowered to live for the glory of God through Jesus. In Christ, we have a new life. We have a new lifestyle. And we have the sure promise of eternal life. Because our old self was crucified with Christ, Scripture tells us, and because we've been raised with him, sin no longer owns us. We were slaves to sin. That's what we find if we read other parts of Roman. We were literally slaves to sin. And when you're a slave to sin, that means you can't help it. You have to do what your master says. But we're no longer slaves to sin since the death of Christ and his resurrection. Again, looking at part of Romans 6, death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. One commentary says, believers have died to sin, but as long as we live in our mortal bodies, we will have the compulsion to sin. But only because we have died to sin do we have the power to no longer let it control us. We are, in fact, free from our slavery. But each day, we must reject our old slave ways. We can fully identify with Jesus in his death and resurrection. We can do that when we receive Christ, and we can continue daily to choose to identify with him. We cannot overcome sin without that identification. One scholar has suggested this analogy for that idea. He writes, we cannot live our physical life unless we are in the air and the air is in us. Unless we are in Christ and Christ is in us, we cannot live the life of God. In Christ, in Christ. It's a pretty important place, a pretty important statement. But thanks be to God, we can be in Christ, and Christ can be in us. That's one of the things made possible by the resurrection, God's vindication of Jesus' words, it is finished. Now, even though these things are important to us, in the scheme of things, there's one more thing I want to mention this morning, and it's way more important, the most important thing that was brought about by God's great amen to Jesus' words, it is finished. It's the idea that Jesus is glorified. The resurrection brings justified, absolutely appropriate glory and honor to Jesus. Now, in this world, people are often honored, and in many ways, people are glorified. People do it themselves sometimes. Sometimes other people do it for them. How else can you explain celebrities like Justin Bieber? How else can you explain the Elvis phenomenon, where people more than 40 years after his death still visit the home where he lived and he died? 
Now, many of these people aren't mere fans. There's nothing wrong with being a fan of Elvis or other musical stars or enjoying his or her music. But in a very real sense, some of Elvis' fans worship him. Now, I know because I lived in Memphis for a year and I met a lot of these people who were trying to find their way to the Graceland Mansion where Elvis lived and died. And some of those worshipers are a little bit scary. Those are just a few examples about how we can glorify ourselves or have other people glorify us. But think about this. Is any human being truly worthy of glory, of being glorified? Think about it this way. When we exalt ourselves or we exalt someone else or we puff ourselves up, when we make much of ourselves, any of us, no matter how good or even great we are or may think we are, we are exalting imperfection. But when Jesus is exalted by others, or when he exalts himself, or when God the Father glorifies Jesus, or when he does things for the express purpose of glorifying himself, he's the only one who can say he's truly exalting perfection, truly glorifying something that's truly worth glory, truly deserving of glory and honor and praise. So when we say that Jesus was raised to glorify himself, it's not the same thing that we do and we say when we do something to glorify or exalt ourselves. Here's the big difference. He deserves the glory. We don't. Right? John Piper wrote, Paradise will not be a hall of mirrors. It will be a display of majesty and it won't be ours. If this is true, and if Christ is the most majestic reality in the universe, then what must his love be to us? Surely not making much of us. That would not satisfy our souls. We were made for something much greater. This means that to love us, Jesus must seek the fullness of his glory and offer it to us for our enjoyment. Isn't that a great thing to think about? That is why he prayed the night before he died, Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, verse 22, I have given them the glory that you gave me. And then a few verses later in verse 24, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. And that's the same glory that we can not only witness, in some way not only see, but share in for eternity. That's another thing that was made possible by the resurrection of Jesus. God's great vindication of Jesus' words, it is finished. Let's close with a passage of Scripture from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And I want you to listen carefully as I read this or as you read it on your own, follow along with me because we're going to see these themes that we've been exploring together in summary form as we've thought this morning together about the best news ever. It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. With that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. 
Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the validation of Jesus' words, it is finished, that was witnessed by many people so powerfully in the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are grateful, Father, for this one big package of spiritual power that the death and resurrection of Jesus means in our lives and for your glory. We're grateful, Father, that we can be called your children because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. We're grateful, Heavenly Father, that we too can live new lives. We can resist the power of sin, whereas previously we were slaves to sin, but we're no longer slaves to sin because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Father, we thank you for that. those words of victory that Jesus stated on the cross and how that victory was vindicated, it was validated, it was affirmed. You, Heavenly Father, said amen to Jesus' words. It is finished at that moment that Jesus was raised from the dead. Father, may you be glorified in all these things we've pondered here this morning. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for the privilege of gathering with our brothers and sisters and celebrating the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.